Good morning, Christ Prez. Our scripture reading today is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And if you haven't already read those, I encourage you to pause this and go ahead and read those now. I started flying pretty regularly when I went to college. I'd fly at least a couple of times every year from Spokane, Washington, where I went to school, back to San Antonio, Texas, where I grew up. And because I'd fly Delta, I always had a layover in Salt Lake City. That was one of the hubs for Delta. If you were flying Delta anywhere out west, chances are you'd have to go through Salt Lake City. Well, now when I fly out of Richmond on Delta, I'm almost always going through Atlanta. That's another of their hubs. Those of you who fly with any regularity know this. You usually have to pass through hubs to get to where you want to go. Well, I want to use that as an analogy to inform how we read the Bible. The Bible is not a random collection of laws and rules and stories. Uh, To use the words of the Bible Project guys, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. It's one big story. That doesn't mean that everything fits together perfectly or that there's nothing difficult or confusing going on in this story, but it does mean that there is a way to read all of Scripture as one unified story that leads us to Jesus. One way to learn this story is to see that just like with air travel, there are hubs in scripture. There are these major connecting points that tie the whole journey together. These are key watershed moments in the Bible's unified story that hold everything together as a whole. In a way, you have to pass through them to get to your final destination. So one of those hubs is Genesis chapters one through three. Another is Genesis chapter 12. One is Exodus 19. And another is, you guessed it, 2 Samuel chapter 7, our chapter that we're looking at this morning. It is difficult to overstate the importance of this passage. Walter Brueggemann calls it one of the most crucial in the Old Testament. Tim Chester calls it the most important chapter in 1 and 2 Samuel and one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. This is a major hub. If you want to get anywhere else in scripture sooner or later, you have to pass through 2 Samuel 7. If somehow you make it to the New Testament without having wrestled with this passage, you will miss so much of what's happening there. So this passage is about David and David's legacy, but more than anything else, this chapter in in our passage is about God. It proclaims amazing truths about the God we worship. So this is a hub, and we'll pass through it together this morning. Let's look at what it shows us about both the freedom of God and then also the promises of God. Okay, so first, the freedom of God. If you remember from last week in chapter 5, David has become king, and he is rebuilding unity in Israel. One of the first things David does is conquer Jerusalem and make it the political capital of Israel. Then in chapter 6, David also wants to make it the religious capital of Israel, so he goes and he gets the ark and he brings it to Jerusalem as a sign that God's presence is now with him and with this new unified kingdom. That's where our passage picks up. Verse 1 says that David was finally settled in his nice new palace, and God had given him and the people rest on every side from their enemies. So now David has time to think, and it occurs to him that while he's been living in a nice house built of cedar, the ark has been out in a tent. David figures that doesn't seem right that God should live in a tent while David lives in a proper house? And it doesn't seem right, does it? In the same way that inviting your out-of-town grandparents over for Thanksgiving and then pitching a tent for them in your backyard 
doesn't seem right. If anything, it seems like it should be the other way around. God should have the house. David should have the tent. And so on one level, this looks like appropriate piety on David's part. Building a temple looks like a very fitting way to honor God. But there's more going on here. In the ancient world, it was common for kings to build temples for their gods. This was a way of shoring up and solidifying their political power. It was also a way of securing the deity's presence. You know, without a temple, deities can be hard to find. And they're hard to protect. Arks are so portable. If all your God has is an ark, there's no telling when the Philistines might show up and take him away. If your God is always on the move, there's no telling when he might move away from you. Better to have God in a temple. He's more secure that way. Then we know where we can find him. Then we don't have to worry about him not being there when we need him. We don't have to worry about him running off if we have him tethered to the temple. Having a temple gives us a sense of control over God. With the right protocols, we can access him and get what we need from him whenever we want. We can sleep a little easier if we've got God in a box. I mean a temple. So David wants to build this temple. And part of it looks like piety, but another part of it looks like self-serving politics. It's good to be the king who builds the temple. It's good to be the one who can guarantee God's presence for his people. Well, initially, the prophet Nathan says, go for it. But that night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. God begins to talk. And God has a lot to say. The last time God talked this much in the Bible story was at Sinai. What does God say here? Listen again. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, that I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, this is classic. God's like, look, I've never lived in a house. And have you heard me complaining about it? No. Last time I checked, I'm doing just fine. See, God is actually expressing his preference for the tent. Why? Because a tent better communicates the freedom of God. A tent better communicates the freedom of God. This is a God who wants to be on the move. He won't be managed or controlled. He can't be domesticated like one more tribal deity. This is the God who does what he pleases. He likes being on the loose. He doesn't want to be boxed up. He wants to move among his people. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, this is a God who will not be held in place by any religious arrangement. He's free. There's a warning for us here in David's story, I think, and it's this. The more success we experience, the more in danger we are of trying to domesticate God. When David was just a shepherd boy in the field, he had nothing but his faith in the wild God of Israel. He knew this God could take down giants. But now that he is successful and powerful and secure, now that he's living in a nice palace, a nice house built of cedar, David has developed his own agenda for his life. And he would love to make God a part of it. 
he would love to fit God into his plan. You know, one of the great tragedies of Western Christianity is that Christians have become so acclimated to power and comfort that we have domesticated God. We've used God for our own ends. We fit him into our own agendas. We've taken this radical act of following Jesus, which at one time was a recipe for a life of danger and risk and potential death. And we've made being a Christian a badge of status and acceptability. See, we have our own little boxes for God, our temples that allow us to manage him and access him when needed and otherwise do our own thing. But family, the God in our box isn't the true God. See, the true God will not be tamed, cannot be domesticated. To know the true God, to really encounter this God is to be undone. It's to have your life turned upside down and inside out. It's to never be the same. This God says, your life is not about fitting me into your agenda, but getting on board with mine. See, God is free, totally free. That's the first point. But where does that leave us? If God is really free, can we really trust him? How do we know that at the end of the day, we're not dealing with a God who is capricious and unpredictable? How do we know that this God won't leave us at any moment? I mean, this is why people build temples in the first place. Having a God on the loose doesn't feel safe at all. Well, you remember that place in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Susan first learns that Aslan is a lion. And she responds by saying, oh, I thought that he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And to that, Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. See, our passage leads to the same conclusion. God is not safe, but he's good. He's not a God we can manage or control, but he is a God we can trust and depend upon. He's totally free, but because he's this God, His freedom is always the freedom of perfect love. And so he makes promises. God makes commitments and his freedom is shaped by these promises. He freely gives himself to his people in love. Let's look at the extraordinary promises of God in this passage. Remember, God has asked David, would you build me a house to live in? See, David was focusing on what he could do for God, but now God wants to correct David's understanding of how their relationship works. Look again at verses eight and nine. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. You see, Who is the actor in these verses? It's not David. It's God. I took you. I have been with you. I have cut off all your enemies. I will make your name great. See, this was not David's doing, but God's doing. Look at verses 10 and 11. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
See, David has been concerned with building a house for God, but now God is saying that he is preparing a place for his people, and it will be a place of real rest where God's people no longer have to fear their enemies. It will be a place of lasting peace, a place of of real flourishing. Not because David has done anything, but because God makes and keeps promises. Because God is free to do whatever he pleases, and what pleases him is to provide for his people. You know, family, this is good news, and it cuts against so many of our religious instincts. So often we default to relating to God in a kind of quid pro quo way. We think that if God is going to do something good for us, we better do something good for him. If we want the blessings to flow, we better behave in ways that merit blessing. If we want God to accept us and receive us and love us, then we better adjust our lives accordingly. But notice the foundation of God's promise here. It has nothing to do with David accomplishing anything. This is not a quid pro quo situation. God isn't saying, I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for you. I will give you rest if. You see, there's no if. And so God's not saying, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. He's not even saying, if you keep the Mosaic law, I'll bless you beyond measure. See, he's not submitting to that kind of religious arrangement. He's just making unconditional promises of provision and care. Family, this is grace. This is the unmerited, undeserved, one-way love of God in action. Religion says, do this and God will love you. Grace says, God loves you, period. God created you. God lived and died and rose for you. God rescued you, redeemed you, and reconciled you. Now, how will you respond? See, David needed to be reminded of the foundation of God's promise. It had nothing to do with what David could accomplish for God. It had everything to do with what God, by sheer grace, planned to do for David. God's saying, I'm going to bless you just because I can do whatever I please, and this is what pleases me. So how will this come about? How will God secure a name and place and rest for his people? How will God make good on these promises? The remainder of the passage answers this question. Um, In verse 11, we read, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is a nice little play on words in the Hebrew. David said he wanted to build God a house, meaning temple. Now God says that he will be the one to build David a house, meaning not temple, but dynasty. God is saying to David, not only am I making a promise to you, but I am making a promise that extends far beyond you. I promise to make your descendants a dynasty, and I will so graciously and unconditionally commit myself to them that nothing, and I mean nothing, will ever be able to undo this promise. Look what God says. First, death can't undo the promise. We see this in verses 12 through 13. God says, when you die, my promise won't die. I'll still be committed. Second, sin can't undo this promise. In verse 14, God mentions the times that the kings will do wrong. They'll sin. If you know the story of the kings of Israel, you know that most of them uh, were pretty terrible people. They did some really horrible things. Solomon, David's son, he did terrible things. In fact, it's not long before David himself will do terrible things. And yet God says not even sin, not even rebellion will stop this promise. He'll bring discipline and correction, 
but God's steadfast love will not stop. So not death, not sin, and then not even time. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The passage of time will not stop God's promise. God is saying, my promise will last as long as God lasts. Time might end, the world might end, the sun might be extinguished, and yet even then, God's promise will hold. The kingdom of God, the the kingdom that God will establish through David will last forever and ever, for all eternity. Your family, do you see it? This is a hub. This is why so much of what we find in the New Testament runs through the hub of this chapter, because you can find the whole plot line of the Bible right here. Remember the plot? In the beginning, God established a little kingdom garden, a place called Eden. He created it as a paradise with God himself as the king. And in this kingdom, there was no death, no tears, no pain. It was a place of perfect peace and rest. But we rejected God as king and made ourselves the kings instead. And as a result, we lose the place of peace and rest. Everything begins to unravel. We lose um, the place of peace. We lose the rest from our enemies. Sin and death and evil now plague us on every side. But in loving freedom, God makes promises. And so in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a nobody named Abraham and makes him a promise. He says, one day out of your body, your line will come an offspring, a seed, a person. And through that seed, I will bring blessing to the whole world. I will once again establish my kingdom on the earth. And now here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the echo of that promise amplifies. Here God makes the promise even more specific. He now specifies that this seed, this offspring, will be from the line of David. And he will be a king who will establish the everlasting kingdom forever. This promise unfolds like a mighty wave that rolls through the whole Old Testament. The Psalms sing the promise of God. The the day the king will come and the trees and the forest and the mountains will sing for joy. The prophets speak of the promise when the lamb will lie down with the wolf and the people will suffer no more. The whole storyline of scripture recalls this promise and sings of this eternal king who will come to make all things new. So is it any wonder that the very first words of the New Testament are these, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, the promise is ringing out. Or in Luke, the angel speaks to Mary of her coming son and says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. Or in Galatians, where Paul says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Or John, which tells us that the word became flesh and built his temple among us. No, that's not what it says. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. See, this is how the free God chooses to dwell among his people. This is what God on the loose looks like. And then when Jesus speaks in the final book of the Bible, when heaven and earth have been reunited and all tears have been dried and all sorrows have been lifted and all death has been banished, Jesus says, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. 
See, all of that family runs through this hub. God is free and God is love. And so he makes these eternal, unstoppable, unswerving, unconditional promises in and through Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the eternal king, God's blessing flows to all creation. The king has come and he will come again. And so we lift our heads and we wait with hope. Thanks be to God. Amen.